If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and I didn't get to do the cool New York thing. I had to stay in the woods of New Hampshire, where, Drew, you got to go to the Mickey's original thing? Yeah, uh, Mickey, the true original exhibit in New York. I'm going to bring up some pictures so that I, and we can we can share these pictures as well, but... Oh, cool. It's the 90th anniversary Mickey exhibit in New York that is part kind of like Instagram kind of photo opportunities, sort of like the Museum of Ice Cream. And part of it really is a great historical look back at Mickey as kind of an icon. And they're kind of interactive exhibits, but also a bunch of artists Mm -hmm. have interpreted Mickey and they have historical pieces as well as newly commissioned pieces. So it's really exciting to see that and to see him celebrated as a character and an icon. And I really loved it. And I can walk you through it a little bit, too, if Please, you Please, because they're doing Disney Broadway Day next Tuesday. And, and okay. Nancy and I have been invited down. It's five hours in a car. It's 200 miles, Drew. So, and it's January in New York, which is basically Siberia with buildings. This is really worth this? Well, if you're already in New York, okay. let's be honest. All right. What are you doing? The Disney Broadway, like the... Broadway shows and stuff. Well, no, they literally are bringing in basically the cast of every Disney show on Broadway to walk the red carpet and to raise awareness of this Mickey exhibit, which has been running since November, right? So yeah, and it's and it's at least running until February because we were in the gift shop, which is obviously one of the most important parts <laughs> of the uh, experience. True. And they had you know different things that were coming out at different times, and some of them were coming out in late February. So I, I'm assuming that it's going for much longer as well. There were a lot of people there, so it looks like it was a big hit. But you would appreciate things like, they have this thing set up, a video piece called Steamboat Really Re- Steamboat Really Redux, and it is a modern graphic reimagining of Walt Disney's Steamboat Willie, the original Secret Eye Sound cartoon short featuring the first public appearance of Mickey Mouse mm-hmm. that is broken up into 35 teams which were assigned to various artists or teams of artists from around the world. And it's synced up to the original perfectly. So on one side of the screen, you have the original going. The other, you have this incredible kind of graphic interpretation of the original by, like I said, 35 different artists. And it is really great. I think that's one of the things that you're going to love. And what's cool is you you kind of walk three-dimensionally through the different eras of Mickey. Now, it doesn't get quite as granular as you and I would probably do it, like mm-hmm. pie-eyed Mickey, uh, you know, opened-eyed <laughs> Mickey, uh, and those things, but you walk through a black-and-white section where there are kind of like full-sized reproductions of scenes from Plane Crazy. There's a great kind of lit corridor that celebrates the ink and paint department. It says, here we celebrate the unsung heroes of Disney animation, the women of the ink and paint department. Obviously, that ties into uh, Mindy Johnson's great book that's about to become a Disney Plus uh, documentary series, which is very cool. But it's a cool corridor with with jars that are inspired by the ink and paint department's rainbow room, which I'm sure Mm -hmm. you are aware of. 
And then there's a whole section to his musical era, starting with the band concert, which everyone will be familiar with if they've, you know, ridden the ride at uh, Disney's California Adventure. An entire room devoted to the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where you can sort of put on an approximation of the Sorcerer's hat. And there's great things like an entire room that is devoted to the Mickey Mouse Club and its various permutations, where they actually have memorabilia from the different eras of the Mickey Mouse Club. And what I really liked about this was they fully reproduced the 1990s Mickey Mouse Club set. And right to the side, there was a stand. You know Ample Hills Ice Cream Gym? Are you aware of this uh, company? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they're in Brooklyn. They're in Mm -hmm. uh, the boardwalk at Walt Disney World. They give you the two free Mickey Mouse birthday flavors, which are both delicious. So you can sit there and eat your ice cream in a reproduction of the Mickey Mouse Club. So I know your, I know your insulin levels are spiking uh, right now. Wow! So you you could pretend you're teeny tiny Britney Spears and 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 Justin Timberlake, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But they also have like uh, an original Keith Haring uh, Mickey Mouse painting that he did. There's a look back through all the sort of merchandise throughout the years, the different vans and collaborations with different designers, uh, Levi's and such. And there's also what's cool, and this is a tip for anybody who wants to go but not pay the $30 admission fee, is there is the Cosmic Cave, which I think you saw the kind of like pre-roll footage of that, which is like this crazy psychedelic cage cave of all this Mickey stuff that's been put under black lights and mm-hmm. all this stuff. There was a B-52 song blaring when I went in there. You can actually get to that through the gift shop. You don't have to pay the admission for the rest of the exhibit. But if you're any kind of Disney fan and any kind of Mickey fan, I really do think it is worth it. And if you're in New York in the next couple of months, definitely check it out. All right. I will talk with Nancy. You've tipped the scale here. That <laughs> I sometimes have trouble with these. We got lots of artists to do their version of characters and so often you, you get in that situation and it's like, you don't really know what this character is, but on the other hand, you couldn't pass up this opportunity. But this doesn't sound like that. This sounds like they actually put some thought into the curation and it sounds like fun. Yeah, it's really exciting. And they have some great merchandise too in the in the gift shop for those diehards, including the $1,500 James Jean ceramic statues that are sold out. But you can still get them there mm. if you got the money or room on your American Express card. You can go and, and grab those there. So yeah, it was a really it was a really fun experience and, and I highly recommend it. Okay. Well I'm glad to hear that someone this week had a really fun experience because based on the stories that are coming out of uh, Skydance Animation, there's not many very very many people happy there. John Lasseter is coming on board at Skydance Animation as the new head that he's gonna be writing heard on their animation slate, which, uh, by the way, were you intrigued to see how far out we are from actually getting a film? Yeah, well, there's sort of two films on the docket, right? Yeah, the only one that I saw that had a release date was Luck. Right. But that's not even slated to come out till March uh, 19th of 2021. Right. We're at least <laughs> two plus years out from seeing that film. You know, the announcement was uh, made officially yesterday with, with Larry Ellison sending out a letter to all employees at Skydance, and they were one of the partners on Ghost Protocol. Was Rogue Nation one of theirs as well? Yeah, they've done every one, I think, since Ghost Protocol. So, yeah, they they did uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout. 
as well as I think some of the the Transformers movies mm-hmm. and the GI Joe movies. So yeah, they've they've had a big hand. Yeah, you know, Star Trek Into the Dark and Star Trek Beyond was theirs as well. I mean, they they do make films, but they partner with studios to make mm-hmm. productions, and so animation, you know, they've just sort of started getting into this. In fact, the thing that really put uh, them on the radar was February of 2018. They landed Nathan Grano after he left Disney. And Nathan was the co-director of Tangled, and he was the, the gentleman who was writing Hurt on Gigantic before it, it crashed and burned at Disney. Well, I think that it's it's going to be interesting to see if he really moves the needle. I mean... Like you said, Skydance isn't a traditional studio. So mm-hmm. the, it's not like he's going into another Pixar situation. Yeah. And the other thing is that he does not have his kind of confederacy of incredible genius storytellers like Lee Unkrich mm-hmm. and Andrew Stanton and Brad Bird and Pete Docter. He's just going in. There's a couple of projects in development, but it doesn't have that kind of creative tailwind that, that you would expect for something that he's associated with. So it's going to be really interesting to see if he can actually do anything with it, just putting aside all the obvious like moral quandaries that we find ourselves in with this news, because a lot of people in animation are not happy about this. A lot of female filmmakers are not happy about this. One of the projects that Skydance has is a female-driven action film written written by Linda Wolverton, who obviously wrote Beauty and the Beast. so it'll be interesting to see what happens to that project because we know what happened with the last female-led project that he supervised, which was Brave, mm-hmm. and ended terribly with Brenda Chapman being kicked out and mm-hmm. her kind of uh, grousing about that. So yeah, I don't, I don't really know what is going to happen to it, and I wonder what Paramount's response will be to this. Are you hearing the same thing that there's been the equivalent of a Kevin Hart pushback that? The press has been so bad that people are actually supposedly advising Lassiter that maybe you should let this this go by. It, it was just too soon. It's November of 2017 where, you know, he, and in fact, it, it, I guess it's so ironic to me that, what is it, two weeks before this, he's on the red carpet for, for Coco. And the day before that, he's up at the Walt Disney Family Museum uh, getting the Di- the first ever Diane Disney Miller Lifetime Achievement Award. And <laughs> to further the irony here, Drew, he's handed the award by Ron Miller, the guy who fired him from Disney. <laughs> and while all that's going on, the Rowan Farrow story about Harvey Firestein drops in in The New Yorker. And, you know, then we have the story in the New York Times about Louis C.K., about the five women who come forward and accuse him of sexually inappropriate behavior. At least in Louis C.K.'s case, he comes out and he says, they're right, people who are accusing me of this, this is true. But what I find fascinating is that Louis makes a statement to the effect of, you know, I'm going to step away now for a good long time and listen. Thanks to my career, I've been able to talk for all these years, and I'm going to step away and listen. By mm-hmm. August, began to hear about Lewis making the appearances at the Comedy Cellar, you know, sort of trying yeah. to find his way back. And here's Lewis trying to make his way back. In fact, tonight, he's performing at uh, Funny Bones in Albany, and it, evidently he announced this gig this afternoon, and the show sold out in 45 minutes. So there's People clearly who want wow. to see him perform, 
But at the same time, there's a lot of people like, you know, you were only gone for less than a year. That's the thing with Lassiter. It's just sort of like, I mean, I get that he wrote that letter in November and he, he said he was going to do his six month sabbatical. And, but February they had, Disney had that, that day of listening at the, mm-hmm. the studio to try to sort of gauge from folks how they felt about this. And April, May, we saw that the trial balloons kind of floated. Can John come back? But not, yeah, just strictly in just a creative position, not a managerial position. And that got shot down. So by June, you know, we had the announcement that John would be leaving the company December 31st of this year and, or 2018. And, you know, you then had Pete Docter made the new chief creative officer of Pixar and Jennifer Lee, the chief creative of Disney. But yeah, I mean, I think that he never apologized, which is the big thorn in everybody's side about, especially about attempting this comeback is that. He is a egomaniac by every account and treats women terribly, but hasn't owned up to it and hasn't apologized and hasn't done the work and gone to the people that he wronged and and made amends and all those things that you're supposed to do when you're, you know, found out for something like this. He just hasn't done it. So I think that this is such a hard this is even harder for people to stomach both in the industry and also looking on because he just never said he was sorry Mm -hmm. in a real way. So I think that's really a a big stumbling block, but... He did write that letter, all right? And the letter that he used to announce his sabbatical. Then he stepped away, and was there anything else he could have done? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he hasn't done anything anything but that you know public we've, publicly. we've heard not publicly, but yeah. I but also I did ask people yesterday mm-hmm. as this news was breaking, and some people were shocked at how harsh the reaction was mm-hmm. to him. Yep. But he should have expected it. The other thing that I wonder about is like, did he really need another job? Like he was supposed to retire when Toy Story Four came out. Mm-hmm. He has more money than he could ever spend if he lived to be a million years old. Mm-hmm. You know, does he really need this job? Or is he just such a egomaniac that he has to have that validation? He could have just quietly lived his life and he chooses to put himself back out there. That's a fascinating element, I think. He might sincerely be looking for redemption he might be looking to redeem his reputation you look at just the sheer numbers of people who work at skydance animation there's only 60 70 people it's a yeah in, in a weird sort of way it's it is kind of a return uh, to the early days of pixar the, to the tiny crew and john especially after disney bought pixar in uh, 2006 Really, he sort of became the audience whisperer. He was the guy who he didn't get to direct as much anymore as he sort of sat back and looked at films that other people were making and would make suggestions about how to better make characters connect with the audience or how to clarify story problems and that sort of thing. So I wonder if part of the appeal of the Skydance thing is that it's a return to the beginning and that he can actually show off that he can make movies again. Think about the number of times you and I would go to Disney or Pixar uh, press junkets and they would find ways to mention what John had specifically suggested to fix that film. 
Right. You know, they were very, very eager to make sure that John had laid hands on this film, and, and this is the specific way that he did it. Supposedly, one of the reasons that Disney agonized about this decision, do we let Lasseter go, is there was a genuine fear in the company that this was August 1994 all over again. That Remember when Eisner forced Katzenberg out, and Katzenberg gets in bed with Spielberg and Geffen, and he then creates, you know, DreamWorks, which, again, in, as far as Disney's concerned, the only thing that really concerned them about that was DreamWorks animation, and the, what a powerhouse that became for about 10 years, and, you know, how it fought Disney for market share and fought Pixar for market share. So they were terrified that John would go out and join some other blue sky, or, you know, the other folks like that, and John had those meetings in, what is it, November with William Morris Endeavor right? about his second act and where he wanted to go. And supposedly one of the ideas that John pitched to them during the two-hour-long meeting he had with them was that he, when he was growing up, John would run home from school so he could see the Looney Tunes cartoons. He was such a big fan that, you know, at a relatively young age, he could tell... A Chuck Jones from a Bob Clampett from a Fritz Frilling without even seeing the credits. I mean, that that's how big he was into that. So he supposedly asked them to reach out to Warners to see if they'd be interested in him coming on board over there. And they didn't even get to the talking stage. It was like this incredible, it was like hard pass. It's like, no, we're not taking on John Lasseter. Wow. And so this is how he didn't end up at a major. He ended up at Skydance. And, and Disney, evidently Disney execs who have been fretting about all of this for quite some time. It's like, he landed at Skydance Animation? Like, never mind. Okay, moving on. Right. They're clearly not sweating this right now. Now, mind <laughs> you, in five years or so, when there's actual films out there, Disney used to look in the rearview mirror at Illuminations and laugh like, yeah, sure. Okay, those guys. Don't worry about them. Right. Again, to circle back to Larry Ellison's letter and the town hall meetings and that sort of thing, John has worked through Princess and the Frog. He worked with Oprah. Through uh, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, he works with Ellen DeGeneres, two of the more powerful, trusted women in show business today. And the folks at, at William Morrison Endeavor who you know, evidently reached out to them for statements of support for John, you know, and, and the standard sort of blurbs you throw in a press release about, oh boy, you know, John Lasseter's back to work and I can't wait for this to happen. And evidently same thing. It's like, no, not going to help. You know, you brought up to the, you know, uh, in your timeline here that, that uh, the theme parks too this past year have had these giant Pixar based attractions opening and Pixar pier and all that. And he has been nowhere and they've had to sort of scramble to find people to replace him. But you brought up the fact that he he was outed mm-hmm. for his misconduct at a time when he was particularly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Well, right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think about it. You know, the the Cars three had come out summer of two thousand seventeen and seriously underperformed. In fact, so much so that Mattel just weeks afterwards had to announce that it was doing so badly that they they had to warn their shareholders, like, look, we're we're probably gonna have to take a write down on this. And who thought? Who would ever thought that? Cars, which at one point it was as big, if not a bigger franchise for Disney consumer products than The Princesses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They said like $8 billion yearly oh, um, yeah. for a while. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. That 
gets tripped up. And then, of course, you have Gigantic, which John's standing on stage in, in August of 2015 at the, the D23 Expo, and they devoted like 20 minutes of the animation presentation to, you know, we're finally going to do a Disney version of Jack and the Beanstalk. And with the music's being done by the people who just did Frozen, and it's set in Spain in the Age of Discovery. And I can't tell you the number of times <laughs> between 2015 and 2018, I talked with people at the company who were all, you know, whether it was Imagineers who were working on a, a Spain pavilion for Epcot, because... You know, we have a Disney princess. You know, Ima, was that the name of the... Right, yeah, Ima or Ida or... Yeah. yeah. You know, they just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And finally, September of 2016, you know, no, 17? They had to officially go, it isn't working, we're going to shelve it. And took a $98 million write-down on this project, which... I guess brings me to, to my final point here. Given that Nathan decamped from Disney in February to go over to Skydance Animation, and given that clearly Gigantic's not being able to go forward did make John vulnerable at Disney, you know, along with Cars 3. I mean, but face it, there would have been people in the company if, if Cars 3 had been a giant hit. And if Gigantic hadn't shut down, there were people in the Disney company who would have protected John. Yeah, you and I both know that Disney is really good at, at protecting people, at the very least making this kind of public rehab mm -hmm. a lot more palpable. But they didn't do that with John. No, they did not. And I think, as you said, a lot of this had to do with the fact that with the timing of this, I mean, that the John doing his six-month sabbatical you had all of the stuff that this company had previously announced. What do you go? Pixar Fest starts at the Disney Resort in April of last year. And then, what, just a week or so after that, the Shanghai Disneyland opens its Toy Story Land, where, you know, if I had all had gone according to plan, John would have been over there front and center cutting the ribbon and all that. And then, just weeks after that, we had Toy Story Land open at Disney Hollywood Studios and Pixar Pier in, in California. And again, you got to a couple of these press events. Yeah, yeah. I went to the California Adventure press event. And it was very weird because it was such a Pixar thing, but no one was mentioning John at That's all. it exactly. That's it exactly. I mean, he, no one would acknowledge the big bong in the room, Drew. <laughs> it will be interesting to also deal with this stuff in a few months when Toy Story 4 opens. And it's a it's a franchise that is born of John's imagination. So mm. dealing with those questions will uh, be interesting. Speaking of the things that are coming out from Pixar later this year, we've got that Monsters Inc. Uh, animated series that's going to bow on Disney Plus, right? Yes. Do we know who is doing the animation for that yet? They have been really, really tight to the vest about that. We'll we'll have yeah. to do some more poking there, but. But on the other hand, there are all sorts of wonderful projects that are going to be popping up on television in 2019. And how about this, Drew? We'll, we'll take a quick break here, and then we'll talk about a bunch of those. We'll be back shortly, folks. And we're back. I guess we should acknowledge the other story that broke in the middle of this whole last year going to Skydance thing, and... It was the news about Brad Bird's new project. 
Well, new project slash old project. Remember, we had we had talked about this before because when I was at Pixar in October, mm-hmm. I had asked him what the next thing was, and he said, "Oh, it's a it's an older project that I really am am interested in doing, and it and it mixes animation and and you and I had no idea what that was, mm-hmm. but it turns out it's a musical that's live action with twenty minutes of animation and new music from Michael Giacchino." Now, I don't know if that means songs from him, too, because he's never written songs before. So I'm very curious about this. As soon as I saw the Michael Giacano thing, the musical, and in the whole 20 minutes of animation, I immediately you know, reached out to folks who'd worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and it was like, how much animation did that have? And they're getting me a count on that. Okay. He's talking about it being an older project. I have been drilling down into stories that Disney has acquired to adapt into films. And the problem is that Pixar is also, it, it has always been kind of a black box. Well, he told me he didn't, he wasn't sure which company owned it mm-hmm. now. So I wonder if that's a Fox thing that maybe it's a, was a Fox property that's now a Disney property. I, I have no idea, but that's what he told me. In October. Okay. So I have no clue, though. I did have a friend totally freak out, you know, because, again, when it came down and they were saying it was 20 minutes of animation, it was a musical, and it was one thing that said, oh, my God, it's Who Discovered Roger Rabbit? The thing that Alan Menken worked on, that at one point Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were going to be the, the stars of this. Then when they came out that it was... Michael Giacano music versus Alan Menken music is like, oh, no, it's it, it's not that. Did I tell you that I was I talked to Robert Zemeckis recently and I brought up Roger Rabbit and and he uh, he said that that there's a great script that's finished, but Disney's not interested in making it because there are any princesses in it. Uh, is, oh. That's a direct quote from him. And then he also said that he li- still likes going to Toontown at Disneyland because it makes you nervous. And that's what you should be. You should be nervous when you're in Toontown, which I thought was very funny. Oh, that's so cool. Isn't that cool? Oh, it's still not going to make me go to Welcome to Marwin, but thank you for sharing that info. (laughs) Well, yeah, I saw it so that you don't have to. Okay, well, there we go. Now, let's talk about what's coming in uh, television animation for 2019. You and I being such big fans of Gravity Falls, the fact that so many of the people who worked on that have gone on to do projects uh, other projects. I mean, yeah. But on the other hand, you look at something like Owl House, and haven't we been waiting for that one for a while? Oh my God! Give us Owl House already. Yeah, Owl House is from Dana Terrace, who is also Alex Hirsch's girlfriend, mm-hmm. and it sounds awesome. And she's an amazing artist. Mm-hmm. And that and Amphibia, which is from Matt Braley, who's another Gravity Falls storyboard artist. Both of those are going to be brand new Disney Channel shows, but we have not heard anything more about them since that since that initial announcement. No footage, nothing. It's it's like painful. Just give us give us these shows already. I mean, I don't mean to be obnoxious here, but Disney Channel used to be good at promotion. <laughs> Did you know that the Phineas and Ferb Milo Murphy crossover? event it ran this past saturday no i had no idea yeah this thing that the full season of you know, the first full season of milo murphy built to that you know they were just one town over one neighborhood over from phineas and ferb in danville the tri-county area for this supposedly culmination with hugely popular disney characters 
to come and go without I didn't see anything in the entertainment press. I didn't see anything. Again, my job is to monitor the Walt Disney Company, and nothing. I know. They used to be really good at this. And if you were bringing doing something with Phineas and Ferb again, wouldn't you be playing that up? I mean, isn't this the company that, that every five minutes now I, I get a plug for the live-action Kim Possible movie? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so maybe maybe we'll just wake up one day and Owl House and Amphibia will be on TV and we'll just be able to watch them. and <laughs> <laughs> That's how it'll be. But yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, couple that with the erratic release schedule of some of these shows, mm-hmm. like the fact that there has not been a new DuckTales since early December for no apparent reason. And I I mean, you you can sympathize because this is how they kind of released Gravity Falls, mm-hmm. right? It would be like, there'd be two episodes one week after another, and then it would be six months and there would be no episodes. And you would just sort of have to have to go along with it. And I'm sorry, but in a world where, you know, for example, when She-Ra dropped on Netflix and I could watch all 12 episodes in a yeah. shot and grow to love the worlds and the characters... I'm sorry, but if you're breadcrumbing, dribbing, and drabbing shows out like this, how can you compete in today's world like that? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Now, speaking of which, I see in your list here, you know, we're talking about Netflix. Amazon Video has Undone coming? Yeah, uh, I still have not watched BoJack yet, so that's that's on me. But I know that everybody, that this new show sounds really great. That's being created by Raphael Bob Waskberg, who created BoJack. Mm-hmm. And Kate Purdy and it stars uh, Rosa Salazar. Uh, and it sounds like a really interesting kind of it's about a young woman who's involved in a car accident. And then there's kind of a metaphysical attempt for her to figure out what happened to her father. And it sounds really cool. And I've heard from people that it's incredibly ambitious and really unlike anything you've ever seen before. So I'm really excited about that. Now, speaking of Bojack, though, there, there's another more adult animated series coming this is though this is at netflix not amazon video that kuka and birdie is that correct yeah so this is from bojack's production designer and producer lisa hanwalt and it stars ali wong and tiffany haddish and they're like two kind of anthropomorphic birds Mm -hmm. uh it looks pretty weird and funny and i like that netflix is catering to both sort of older audiences and families with um you know, I'm very excited about Wizards, which is the third part of the Guillermo del Toro animated kind of overarching series that started with Troll Hunters, has continued with Three Below, and that's going to finally culminate in Wizards, which he, he's been talking about on Twitter as being a real kind of coming together of all the things they've been doing the past few years. So I'm really, really excited about that. Well, speaking of standing with one foot in the adult, you know, older animation world and another, you know, the, the kid-friendly I have to admit, at the outermost edge of my childhood, they launched the Scooby-Doo <laughs> movies on CBS. And, oh, you know, yeah. it, and it was so weird as a kid to, you know, for example, watch the episode where, for example, you know, my favorite improvisational comedian, Jonathan Winters, showed up. Not only as Jonathan Winters, but his character, Maude Frickard, or Don Knotts, and Tim Conway, and Laurel and Hardy. So for me, the the, the fact that Everything old is new again, and here we are circling back to Scooby-Doo and guess who? Yeah. I love who they've lined up for this <laughs> show between authentic, really for real performers like Ricky Gervais, Bill Nye, and, and Mark Hamill, along with fictitious characters like Batman actually appeared in the original new Scooby-Doo movie, so they bring back right. Batman, but 
Steve Urkel? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's TGIF in my heart still, uh, Jim. It sounds bizarre. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to tell you that on the Warner Brothers lot, mm-hmm. on the the main kind of studio spaces that it's facing the street, mm-hmm. they have the new design of Bugs Bunny up there. Do they really? For, yeah, for the animated shorts. And I was walking over there and I was like, oh, wow, that is great that they are starting to get behind this. I mean, for a long time, that was the building where they had like, a lot of the Warner Brothers characters, including the Batman the Animated Series characters and stuff like that. But recently they've kind of switched it out for whatever's current uh, in the theater. So Aquaman was up there for a long time. But yeah, they're getting behind this this the Looney Tunes conceit in a big way. So I'm I'm very excited about that. Now remember the initial announcement of that. What is it? It was like a thousand yeah, they have that number up on the thing. It says a thousand new shorts. Oh. And it yeah, so they're sticking to that. Okay. So I don't know. Yeah, okay. I don't know. How, I don't know where it's going to air or how it's going to be delivered, but speaking of new logos, did you see the uh Disney's Hollywood Studios logo? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what a surprise for the 30th anniversary of of that park. Here's Mickey and Minnie, but specifically the Mickey and Minnie from the new shorts. Which, again, is, is what's also powering the Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway attraction. Which I keep hearing, largely because, again, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge looks like they've stopped using the term late fall. They're just saying fall now. Oh, really? Oh, uh, yeah. And you know Disney. It's you know, one of these things where it's like, when you drop the late, it's like, okay, something happened. Right. Let me get into the phone. And it's like, it said, yeah, we caught a break. We're kind of caught up. and But it's the earliest we could open is October. But again, the whole month of October, and that has to include when we do our cast member test and adjust. And then, you know, it has to do our DVC and annual pass things. And, you know, just because Drew and I are talking about this now, more to the point, Drew didn't say this. I did. So if I'm, if we're wrong, Drew doesn't take the hit here. <laughs> But here's the thing. Do not buy a plane ticket yet. Okay? Don't book a hotel room for October figuring you can be among the first to get into Galaxy's Edge. You know, remember, this time last year, Toy Story Land was on schedule. And that didn't open until June 30th because they had rain. They had lots and lots of rain. They had construction delays. They were a full month, depending on who you talk to, six weeks behind schedule. So all it's going to take is a really damp spring, and we're right back where we used to be, and it's it's late fall of uh, 2019. But anyway, back to Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Because so many people are putting off their Walt Disney World vacations because they want to see Galaxy's Edge. They don't want to spend all this money and not to get to see the amazing new 14-acre land. Pressure's really on to get Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway open by spring of this year. So they can oh, wow. then have something to promote to get people to come through the gate. And remember, you know, if you've seen the, the promotional stuff for 2019, they have that brand new projection mapping show, the, the animation celebration. That's Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So what they want to do is open both that and Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway in the spring and if disney can figure out how to do it they want to have the attraction open on may 1st for the official uh 30th anniversary of the park 
Wow. So what are we expecting from this attraction? Can you walk us through it a little bit? The real gimmick of this attraction is transformation. They're going to start walking the details of the actual physical attraction out in like the next five or six weeks. So again, it will be safer to talk about it then, but the key is transformation. You know how when you're watching a cartoon and a character will you know, be in the city and they can, oh, I wish I were out in the countryside, and they literally do a wipe and you're there? This attraction is making use of projection mapping in a way that's never been done before. It's using set pieces that mechanically fold and unfold so quickly. I mean, you can lit- right. literally... I remember that that D23 footage yeah. where they kind of, where a kind of where empty warehouse became this, you know, crazy, you know, vista. Yeah. You're going to have moments where you're going to almost plunge over waterfalls. But I guess the thing to understand is at the beginning of the attraction, the train that you're actually on, where you, you get to see Goofy as your engineer and you're going to pass a physical animatronic version of Mickey and Minnie in their car. And you're going to be physically in that environment. But once you sort of make the turn there, you're into this projected space with these transforming set pieces and that sort of thing. I mean, it's going to be a genuinely groundbreaking attraction. I mean, there's a reason why this is already being fast-tracked for Disneyland. I think it speaks volumes about this ride, the fact that Tokyo Disneyland is kind of famous for being a pain in the butt, as in... Well, that attraction's good for Orlando or Anaheim, but we want something better for Tokyo. I mean, you know, think about how they actually turned their back on the Be Our Guest restaurant because they wanted a Beauty and the Beast ride. And and don't get me wrong, you know, we've all seen the animatronics for that, and they are stunning. But they actually saw that the the Oriental Land Company executives got a taste of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, and they're like, we want in. We want it. Wow. But that hasn't officially been announced yet, but this is their next franchise attraction that they're going to walk around the world. And nobody's more delighted than Disney because it's like, look, you took a 90-year-old character and made him valid again. You made him popular. You made you know people want to buy the merch. Right. Which brings us back to New York City. And how much were those statues again? Jim. $1,500. I know. I got the little version, so I'm okay. Yeah, well, there's a whole, you know, Mickey and Mickey celebration in the parks this year, too. It was sort of retail this year, parks in 2019. So I I think that's going to be really exciting. That's going to be the crown jewel of the whole year long celebration, I think. Which we will talk about on future fine tuning shows. But for now, I guess we all kind of keep an eye on. What's going on in the Skydance situation? And, you know, if anything changes there, uh, Drew and I will talk about it on our next show. But before that, Drew, right. you know, if, they, if they, they need to hear your golden tones again, uh, you know, where can they find you? Well, I say go over and, and listen to my other podcast, Light the Fuse, with uh, I do with Charles Hood. It's a really fun podcast. Jim was kind enough to listen as well. And so, yeah, just head over there if you need to. If you need more of me, which I don't think anybody does, well, but if no, you do, and, and I have to tell you that that I really, I have because of your podcast backed into watching the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movies, and I'm always embarrassed about how entertaining these things are. Yeah, they're great. 
they're great. I would not I would not be wasting as much time as I do on them mm-hmm. if they were not <laughs> so fun. But uh, do you know? I, I guess for me, what's kind of intriguing is I I think from Gro- Ghost Protocol going forward is when they really hit their stride. Yeah, they kind of became then a, a whole different thing. I mean, I love the the Brian De Palma one mm-hmm. though too. Mm-hmm. That one is just great. But yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. You you don't see a franchise that gets better and better as with each one. No, like no, one no not at all. In fact, that that half the fun I think of you know starting with Ghost Protocol is the whole notion of you have Tom Cruise's character Ethan Hunt who's constantly in over his head. And the fact that he's forever being thrown at these impossible situations and and trying to get them to work, but I've seen Ghost Protocol, greatly enjoyed that. Right. Followed, right. went straight into Rogue Nation, and this weekend I am finally chasing down Fallout to do. Oh wow! I can't wait to hear what you think. And then you have to listen to my interview with Christopher McQuarrie afterwards. I will. I will. Of, I will. Okay. All, All right. right. And when I'm not watching Mission Impossible movies, <laughs> I do a couple of other podcasts. I do <laughs> uh, Disney Dish with Len Testa. I do Marvelous Disney with the amazing Aaron Adams, who, by the way, is the man who'll be taking Machete to this show and editing it together. Dan Zahir and I do the Looking at Lucasfilm show. And, and Dustin Fuse and I just literally the other night recorded a year in review of uh, the Universal Parks and Resorts. So check that one out, folks. But for now, thanks for listening to Fine Tuning with Mr. Taylor and myself, and we'll be back shortly with another show. And that's it for tonight, folks. Take care. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. <laughs>